spirituality, consciousness, health, and mindset. Welcome to the Ascent Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Together, we are all wisdom and knowledge. Hey, what is up everyone? This week on the Ascend podcast, we are joined by Rupert Sheldrick and Rupert kindly invited us to his home in London and I must say I've never been or seen a room that is filled with as many books as this man had. It was like how I would envision the library of Alexandra before it burned down. But anyway, Rupert is a biologist and he's an author best known for his theory of morphic resonance. And by many different media outlets, he's dubbed as the most controversial scientist on the earth, which entices us to his work even more. And in this podcast, we discuss the dogmas within the conventional science, the sense of being looked at, spiritual senses, the nature of the mind, evolving laws of physics, and the memory in nature. And I also just wanted to say thank you so much to all of our current patrons who are supporting this podcast. It really means a lot to us. And if you also want to become a patron and support what we're doing here, please just consider checking out our Patreon page. And as you know, we've never bombarded you with stupid advertisements or products that don't serve you. All we ask is the best way that you can help us out is through our Patreon page. And we also have got quite a good little community aspect going on in the private patreon facebook group now where people are sharing book recommendations documentaries favorite songs and many more stuff and if you become if you also become a patron and donate any amount that you can you will also be added to that group as well and that would be really cool and i would love to see you there and some other quick news i'm currently as well in the process of setting up an ascend retreat later on in the year so basically i'm going to So basically it's going to be a cool little retreat where we can all get together with like-minded minds, have some fun, good conversations and just experience while gathering with others who are on their journey as well. There'll be yoga classes, meditation, hiking, deep conversations, breath work and many more stuff as well. This is obviously only going to be available to a limited number of people. So if you want to join the waitlist to that, please head over to the Ascend podcast website, click the retreat join the waiting list so anyway i hope you enjoy this episode of rupert sheldrick enjoy so anyway thank you um so much for inviting us to your home as well it really means a lot to us and like I said earlier to you, you're somebody who I've wanted to have a conversation with for a very long time when I first started my journey of looking at alternative to- topics I was coming across a lot of your theories and mm-hmm. the, a lot of the interesting research that you were putting out there and things like that but what I really respect about you is that you seem to I know in the past you come from a very academic st- uh, standpoint mm-hmm. but what I love about you is that you seem to just chase you, you you're aware that seems something seems to be happening so you 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 dive into the aspect of yes something seems to be happening so i'm going to go and chase that i yeah. mean how important do you think it is for somebody to actually do that to just be aware that something is happening and then take away all the preconceived biases and actually just try and have a look analyze something well i think the essence of science is to explore mm. what we don't know i mm. see it as an exploration and for me the fun of science is exploring and trying to find out um, in areas that are very little explored. Most scientists work in very competitive areas where there's lots of other people working and there's lots more money of course in those areas and there's lots more um, recognition. Um, But for me it's precisely the um, areas of research that haven't been explored very much that interest me most. Things like the mysteries of everyday life, um, dogs that know when their owners are coming home, the sense of being stared at, telephone telepathy, memory and nature, all these kinds of areas. 
Yeah, when you said straight away the sense of being stared at, that's somewhere I wanted to take this today because um, a big part of my life is I've had lo- many occurrences. I mean, we, we were talking about this on the way down in the car, about how many occurrences I've had of even just I'll be walking down a street and you'll have the awareness that somebody's looking at you. Mm. I mean, what sort of, what knowledge have you, under- what's your understanding on that now? Well, I mean, most people have had this experience. That's what's so interesting mm. about it, including most children. And surveys show that the vast majority of people in the world mm. have had this experience. But on the other hand, it doesn't fit into the standard materialist model in science. So scientists have almost completely ignored it for more than a century. Um, the research on this only began in, in the 1980s, really. Um, I found it interesting because if, when I look at someone, my mind can influence that person, it shows that my mind's not just inside my head. And the the official theory is that your mind is what your brain does, it's all inside your head. Um, I think it makes more sense to think of minds as fields that stretch out beyond the body and the brain, just like the fields of a mobile telephone, the invisible fields of the phone stretch out beyond the phone, that's why they work. So um, I started looking into this and I found that most of my scientific colleagues said, oh, it's rubbish, Mm. it's just superstition, it doesn't really happen. Um, But um, I then tried to find out, does it really happen by two methods? First, by asking experts. I interviewed lots of people who work in the surveillance industry. no, the drug squad at Heathrow, store detectives at Harrods, um, private detectives who follow people, um, and SAS um, people. I mean, they, all those kinds of people take it for granted that this is real because they've had so many experiences of it. Um, and also in the martial arts, you can be trained to become more sensitive. So that seemed interesting. People who actually do this for a living uh, convinced it happens and as opposed to most of us who are just amateurs yeah. mm. and then secondly I set up a whole series of experiments where people look at the back of someone's neck or they look away and think of something else in a random series not chosen by them I mean a, a properly random series of trials and it turns out they have to guess when they're being looked at that they're right more than they're wrong and it's very significant statistically um, it also works through closed circuit television. So I'm pr- pretty sure this is a real phenomenon which doesn't surprise most people because they've experienced it. Mm. Yeah. And I think it happens with animals too. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 sorry, I was just going to say, I think it's very um, it's very incredible that the uh, scientists were very dismissive of when you were actually approaching them about this topic because it's, cause it's something that's all happened to all of us. Um, me and Dan discussed this thoroughly on the way down here and we've talked about this various times on at various different points in our lives and one of the things I was thinking of there it, and you might shed some light on this for me I, I presumed it was um, an evolutionary trait that we had um, like a safety mechanism so yes. when we're out foraging and hunting we had to have a more of a profif- uh, sorry um, a more of a, a vast range of awareness that we had to keep a lookout for our safety mechanisms and this safety evolutionary trait has just become like transfixed in our mind and it's kind of like something that that we can't separate ourselves from? Would you think Oh, I think so, yes. I think it's evolved. Um, I think in the context of predator-prey relations, I mean, it's not just humans. I mean, I think that many animals have this too. A mm. um, lot of people have found that their dogs or cats can feel when they're looking at them and vice versa. And a lot of wildlife photographers have found that when they're in a hide and the animals they're photographing can't see them when they're using telephoto lenses there's no way the animal knows they're there if they focus their attention on it the animals will quickly run away or fly away Mm. Um, so I think it's a very basic um, predator prey thing what I don't know is how far down the evolutionary scale it goes I mean for example do mosquitoes and flies feel when they're being looked at and are likely to be swatted. It'd be very useful if they could tell that for them. Mm. Um, What about insects in general? What about worms or what about earwigs? You know, there's... uh, um, Nobody knows because this has simply not been investigated because it's one of those taboo areas in science that 
most scientists think it's dangerous to look at because they might spoil their careers and get attacked. Do you think many of them have already concreted the fact of Darwinism and the thing like Darwin's theory of evolution is so sacred and sound that they rarely want to even discuss the possibility that it's something larger? Well, in this case, um, it would fit very well with Darwin's theory That's of what evolution. I was so, so, uh, so um, this doesn't go against evolutionary theory. It just goes against the materialist theory. That the materialist theory is that all matter is unconscious. The universe is made of unconscious matter, and so are our brains. Um, we ought to be unconscious. So the, the fact we're conscious is a big problem for materialist science. That's why it's called the hard problem in the philosophy of mind. But uh, they have to admit that uh, we are conscious, so then they say, well, the consciousness is nothing but the activity of the brain that's inside the head. That's why we got all these taboos against psychic phenomena like the sense of being stared at and telepathy. It's driven by a kind of ideological assumption, not by facts. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we need to move on from that particular assumption and just look at the facts and come to a much wider view of what minds are and how they work yeah do you think that, that the sense of the sense of actually being stared at do you think that's something that we've devolved from in a sense like because of modern day society maybe modern day, the things that the way the world's changing that sense is slowly starting to I wouldn't say disappear because I think everyone has it but it's not as heightened anymore now would you say that's what's happened I think so I think it's something that in the modern world partly because we live in crowded cities mm. most of us there's lots of people looking at you all the time so if you were if you became hypersensitive you'd be you'd be completely overstimulated it may be that people are paranoid of people who have this sense more strongly developed children are actually better at this than adults according to my own and other people's experiments and i think that's because they haven't yet become desensitized Oh really? So you think that's because of the ch the conditioning? Obviously, when a ch ch child's young, their their conscious mind's a lot more fluid, and yes. you get older, you like to get that, more conditioning. Yes, and I think that as we you know get used to living in crowded cities where there's people around all the time, um, we just have to become more insensitive. But um, you know, you can train your sensitivity, which is what these martial arts programs do. And some people um, become more sensitive. I'm, when I've spoken to policemen about this, they've told me that uh, people committing criminal acts tend to become more sensitive around yeah. the time they, you know, they become much more aware. Uh, it becomes more important to know if someone's watching them or not. Yeah. So they think that some people actually become more sensitive through their way of life. In this case, a life of crime. Yeah, that's a really interesting. That do you think? Um, I mean, are you. Uh, obviously the notion that we're talking about here it seems to me that the ability of sensing that somebody's there to me it seems like it's a it is a sense and it, it, like in in the terminology used it is a sense like because when we look at society now society uh, says that we have five senses i mean would you see that we have maybe or more than because what is the notion in society that we only have five senses but it seems to be that uh telepathy or precognition or intuition, whatever it is, it seems to be that we have like a, a, a spiritual senses as well. Yeah, I think we've got several senses. I mean, sometimes people call these things the sixth sense. Uh -huh. In Germany, they usually call it the seventh sense yeah. because the sixth sense has been claimed by some scientists a, a sense of electromagnetic phenomena. You know, some people can tell, mm -hmm. uh, uh, can sense electric or magnetic fields. And many animals can sense electric or magnetic fields, so you could call that the sixth sense. Then this kind of thing is the sense of being stared at, the same as telepathy. Is this the seventh sense? Is telepathy the eighth sense? I mean, you can go on and on. These are all forms of sensitivity that we yeah. do, in fact, have. Do you? I mean, do you think just? I'm thinking in my head as well because obviously there is going to be more people who are going to be more people that tune in, tune into these different these spiritual senses, if you want to call them that. But do you think just like in, in life how, because in the spiritual development, in my opinion, you have to, just like how you open your eyes to new new concepts in the world, do you think that you have to also maybe open up your spiritual senses to sort of develop yourself as a person? Well, I would distinguish between psychic and spiritual senses. I think psychic senses to do with the psyche or the mm -hmm. soul, like the sense of being stared at and telepathy, um, are, as it were, horizontal senses they're what link us to other people or to other animals 
at the same level as us, mm. more or less. Whereas I think the spiritual um, connections are to, uh, to a higher form of consciousness, as it were, more vertical, ab uh, above our level of consciousness. And I certainly think that that realm exists, and that's the whole point of my most recent book, Science and Spiritual Practices, because um, <clears throat> through a variety of spiritual practices, including meditation, um, rituals, singing and chanting, um, uh, sports, and there's many ways in which people contact with a, a, a realm of consciousness greater than the human level, and that I would call um, a spiritual connection, not necessarily a sense, but a connection. It's interesting because I know, I know that you're very, you're quite similar to me in terms of you like going in nature and things like that. And I love going for a walk in nature, and you might be able to recognise this. But when I go into nature, it seems to be my my senses are heightened. Like everything slows down, and I can start to sort of tune into something that I couldn't, like you said before, when you're in a city, you maybe can't. I mean, do you do you find that when you go into nature that you something opens up with inside yourself and well, yes, it rather depends on going on my own, actually. Oh, I mean, well. for example, yesterday I went for a walk with a friend in a beautiful part of yeah. countryside. And it's a part where I've often spent time alone. And I really tune in when I'm on my own. I listen to the birds, I look at the flowers, I, I feel the trees, the, you know, I take in the view. But he's a very talkative person, and he was talking quite interestingly. So we walked through all these fields and stuff, and I barely noticed anything. Um, I mean, I tried to stop now and then, but it was hard to stop him talking. So, yes. um, so I find that if I'm really going to connect, it works much better on my own, because if mm. you're with somebody else, then you're in a kind of... A different I mean, state. You're talking, it's a different state. You're interacting with that person, and nature's just a backdrop. I think for a lot of people, nature is just a kind of backdrop. You know, mm. I've been to situations where you meet people in a beautiful place, you know, for a picnic, or someone's got a beautiful balcony overlooking a natural scene, and and you've gone there for sort of tea or drinks or something, and it, with everyone looks at the view for about thirty seconds, and then, or less, and then starts say, "Oh, this reminds me of this." And last year I was there, and I yeah. saw this, and and. Uh, soon you're away into back into the human world nothing wrong with that we're humans we need to live in the human world but i think that this connection with nature happens best when we can really link directly to it i wonder if it's not just with nature i wonder if it's just in the fact of being present i was i was just thinking in my mind there i'm i'm very present when i'm eating food because i really feel that the taste the texture and it completely overwhelms the senses the smell and I really, because uh, I'm just thinking of food there, um, and that made me think: is it? It's not just maybe not just um, going into nature and experiencing it. That could be one aspect of it, but it could just be um, being present, being in the moment. Mm. Maybe all fa factors. I mean, just going to the theatre and watching a watching a show or the cinema and watching a film, you engrossed in that, and you're actually perception believe that what you're watching is real to the point of where actually it yes. changes your mind. So maybe well, I it think is present. So. I mean, uh, most spiritual practices are about coming into the present, and there's lots of ways of doing that. I mean, mm. one is through being in nature, connecting with nature. Another is through, which you can do with other people, through chanting or singing together. Mm. And if you're singing with other people, you become linked to those other people in resonance with them and very much in the present, or dancing, or sports. You know, if you're skiing downhill at 60 miles an hour or in the middle of a football game, you can't start wondering about, you know, whether you've upset your girlfriend or something like that. I mean, yeah. you've got to be um, totally present. I mean, if, if you're skiing downhill at 60 miles an hour, you come round a corner, there's an obstacle in the way. Um, unless you respond instantly, you're dead. And unless you respond instantly in a football match to where the ball is and who's passing it and what's going on, you're out of the game, basically. I mean, you, mm. so I think sports is actually one of the ways in which most people in the modern world achieve a kind of spiritual connection, a sense of being wow. in the flow. I mean, it's not normally thought of as a spiritual practice, but I think it functions as one for a lot of people. I think as well. Um, you look at, got to look at the aspect after um, after a game, their body goes into a sense of calmness. It's like the testosterone has been like released, and what's left is this like estrogen level of like calm and peace and that's more of like um 
the connection that they get and so it is uh, like basically it's like a form of an orgasm really you've had the you've had the exhilaration the thrill and all of a sudden you get into the the monotone of the beautiful piece and get the same yes. out of football so it's, it's very interesting how exhilaration can create that form of peace and harmony yes it is and that i think and that's why i think it, you know when we think about spiritual practices um i've had to think about this because i've been writing writing this book and there's there's seven different ones i discuss in it and they're quite different from each other and yet they all create spiritual connections and meditation is one that connects them through uh, you get through a sense of calm and peace i mean most people meditate sitting still not doing anything mm -hmm. you get them through sport as we've just said you can get them through a sense of release after you've done a sport there's a sense of calm um through connecting with nature through singing and chanting um and you know there's other ways in which you can get them some of them come through being involved in the flow some of them come through contemplating beauty or being calm in the present and it's an interesting feature that in almost all models of the nature of ultimate spiritual being um uh, nearly all of them in Hindu, Christian, um, and other traditions um, have the idea that there's a source of being, and this has two aspects. One is the aspect of form, and the other is the aspect of movement. In the Christian model, it's holy, the Holy Trinity, the form or the logos, is, or the word, is patterns, forms, structures, and the spirit is the breath, the movement, the activity. And so you can connect with the spirit through, either through activity and being part of the flow or through form and structure and calm or through a mixture of them both, like in dancing. Oh, wow. Do you think sometimes that's what, when you're talking there about connecting with the real essence of who you are, that's what I got from what you see in there. Do you think that's what intuition is doing? Like when you have, have little voices in your, in your life, like no matter what circumstances you are in your life, you have these little a little voice inside your belly will try and guide you in certain directions. Do you think that's what maybe intuition is, is, is whatever whatever you want to call it, the universe or your higher self, do you think that's what intu the, the little voice might be of intuition? You're connected well, to that real source. Well, intuition is really a kind of direct knowing, mm -hmm. um, you know, not knowing through the senses or not working it out through logic, mm -hmm. um, but just a sense of how something is, a direct knowing. And it can take, I think there's several kinds of intuition. One is you may have a feeling that something dangerous or bad is about to happen. And I think that's a very basic biological kind of intuition. Before earthquakes, for example, a lot of animals seem to pick up something's going to happen. I mean, there's, they can give warnings of earthquakes even a day or two in advance. Um, so I think that sense of foreboding is one kind. Um, the intuition that someone needs you is a kind of telepathic intuition. I mean, a lot of mothers, for example, when they're away from their baby, know when their baby needs them. And I, I've studied nursing mothers and babies, and they do have a very strong intuitive sense, well, not all of them, but some have a very strong intuitive sense when the baby needs them. That's kind of telepathy. Or you may feel when someone really wants to get in touch with you by phone, and they're thinking about you trying to get in touch with you, and you then start thinking about them and think, Do, what's wrong with them? Is there some problem? And then the phone rings and there they are. Those are all kinds of telepathic or psychic intuition. But I think there's also the kind you're talking about, you know, where you have a, a feeling or a voice tells you or the feeling of some kind of guidance. And that could come from the higher self and it could come from the spiritual realm. It's not always easy to tell where these things are coming from. Um, but ne but most people do have these intuitions and they're a very important part of our being. Yeah. Unfortunately, our educational system completely ignores all this kind of thing. So it's all about learning stuff out of books and writing exams. It, it's all left brain activity. We get no education at all in these things. But I think that people who play sports develop these intuitions. I think people who work with others, you know, if you're hiring and firing people, if you're dealing with a lot of human relations, then it, that involves intuition. A lot of people in business use their intuition, and a lot of them attribute their success in business to being mm. intuitive.
Yeah. So I think it can also be very useful. Yeah. When you were saying before as well about how you were talking about how the mind sort of stretches beyond the surface of the body, let's say, mm. um, how do you, I know this is a million dollar question, but how do you think that's actually operating? How do you think that's working? Hmm. Well, it is a big question. And I think that the, the, I think the answer is that there are, there's a whole set of fields in nature that um, haven't yet been recognized by science. A field is a region of influence. I mean, it's rather vaguely defined in science, but we have many familiar examples. The magnetic field of a magnet is in the magnet and it stretches invisibly around it, which is why a magnet can influence another magnet or pick up iron filings and things. The field of the Earth, the gravitational field of the Earth, is invisible. We're sitting now because it's pulling us down. If it wasn't here, we'd be floating around. Um, and it stretches out invisibly beyond the Earth. It keeps the moon in its orbit. So mm -hmm. no one has any problem with that, the idea of an invisible field stretching out and keeping the moon in its orbit. That's part of standard science. No one has any problem with the electromagnetic field of a mobile phone or a radio transmitter, which uh, invisibly reaches out. I mean, this room is full of radio and TV transmissions and yeah. mobile phone transmissions. Boom, 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 boom. Everywhere. Full of them, and we're just not aware of them because we haven't got the right tuning device to tune into them. So I think, basically, that our minds are a system of fields that are normally rooted in our brains, and that these are similar to fields which I call morphogenetic fields, form-shaping fields, which shape the growth of embryos and the growth of plants. I think when an embryo grows, when each of us grew from a fertilised egg as an embryo, um, the shape our bodies took was shaped by a kind of an invisible mould, a, a form-shaping field. And I think that these fields shape plants. I think they shape flocks of birds, social groups. And I think that when, they, when we are linked to another person, we're part of a social field. Telepathy normally occurs only between people who are closely linked emotionally. So... Um, there's a relationship between people and even when you go apart uh, when you're apart that field connects them at a distance and I think that's the basis for telepathy I think when we look at something our perceptual fields, the fields of our minds which contain all the images that we're seeing are projected out to where we see things and that it's this connection through fields that link us to what we're looking at and which other people can feel so is it, uh, I'm, I'm feeling, is it a sense of like um, the emotional intensity because the emotional energy trans um, transcends onto another person who you are emotionally connected to, say through love or Well, it's mainly telepathy normally works between people who are closely bonded and with an emotional, uh, with an emotional connection, usually love. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, like mothers and babies. And most telepathy occurs between parents and children, brothers and sisters, best friends, lovers, husbands and wives, twins. It doesn't happen with random strangers. Mm. On the other hand, the sense of being stared at does work with strangers. That's the whole point of it, that you, you can tell when somebody, a stranger, possibly a threatening stranger, is looking at you, or even if a, another species. There was the great... It might be that in that moment they're emotionally... Um, invested in you because they could either see you as a threat or they could either see you as a um, like see if I've noticed on the road a lot and I was thinking about this today um, if you look over you'll see someone staring at you and you're kind of like wondering are they just looking at me for the sake of is that their intuition looking at me now or do they actually see my presence here being a threat to them their existence or do they find you attractive? Or do they I, find me attractive? Yes, yes that's yeah. mainly the outcome. Yes, that's probably <laughs> the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does work with... I, I have done questionnaire surveys about people when they've had this experience, what kind of emotions are involved. Mm -hmm. Curiosity is one. You know, anger is another. Uh, fear is another. Sexual attraction is another. So there's, you usually look, look at people with some kind of motive. Yeah. Mm. Um, and... So I think that the emotional charge is indeed part of it, and if you have a strong emotional charge, the effect may be greater. I think as well, um, uh, you mentioned some good ones there, anger and fear. Um, um, a bullying is another one that you can really connect with someone on, on a level, not on a good level, but 
you understand their thought process and their patterns that you, they kind of like I'm going to be in a fight with that person at half three after school and they kind of already know that's going to happen before school they'll probably mm. tell the mom I don't want to go to school today because I know I'm going to get bullied mm. so it's kind of already got this precognition about what the future events are going to behold because yes. of their intention and sorry intense emotional connection to the bully well I mean this feeling of emotionally charged events in the future is I mean it has actually been studied scientifically and and it does seem to be the case I mean when people have premonitions it's usually about bad things interestingly most premonitions are about bad things and people don't often have premonitions about happy things like mm-hmm. meeting someone they're going to fall in love with or winning the lottery or something they have them much more about disasters animals have them too as I mentioned with earthquakes and tsunamis and natural disasters animals seem to pick that up in advance mm-hmm. and studies of um, pre-sentiment which is kind of short-term precognition I mean feeling the future um, show that this does depend on emotional events I mean there's a series of studies for example by Dean Radin at the Institute of Noetic Sciences in California where in these experiments you see a computer screen it's blank then after a while a picture appears on the screen and most of these pictures are neutral emotionally neutral some of them are very emotionally arousing they're either scenes of great violence or hardcore pornography now most people when they see a very violent or pornographic scene are emotionally aroused whether they like it or not and you can measure this by the skin resistance so it's well known that if you show these pictures people's skin resistance changes slight sweating response uh, adrenaline based Mm. Um, but the fascinating thing about these studies is that um, this emotional arousal begins about five seconds before the picture appears on the screen and the picture the selection of the picture is random by the computer a millisecond before it appears so there's no one in the world knows that that picture is going to appear and yet you can pick it up in advance it's like a pre-echo of this emotional state and if you show uh, it's only with emotional pictures this happens so it's the emotional arousal that seems to be the thing that gives this premonition or warning Oh. Really? Did, did, oh, sorry, I was just going to say when um, when he said it was blank screen as well, did did that change at all? Did they did they like become on a, like a come down? Did they sort did their energy levels drop when they seen the blank wall? Well, there's there's that's uh, when people there's uh, well there's two two different experiments. One experiment, the Dean Radin one, you it's a blank screen and then you see a picture, emotionally arousing or not. There's another experiment done by Daryl Bem, who's another American researcher, which is, again, a very interesting one. There you see two curtains. And you may have read about that Mm -hmm. one. You see two curtains on the computer screen, and you can click on one of them. The curtain draws back, and one of them shows a blank wall, Mm -hmm. and the other shows an erotic image. Um, Now, most people prefer seeing erotic images to blank walls. Um, And... The interesting thing is that the choice of which one's going to draw back is only made after you've made your decision. So people who are doing it don't know that, but they assume it's already there. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, it, the computer just randomly chooses one or the other after you've already chosen your decision. So there's no way you could actually know in advance which one has the erotic image. And by chance, you'd be right. you get it about 50% of the time. It's an equal thing, like tossing a coin. Mm-hmm. But actually, people get the erotic image about 54% of the time and the blank wall 46% of the oh, time. Wow. When there's hundreds of trials, this becomes statistically significant. So there's a tendency for people to feel which one, where they don't know why it's unconscious, to feel, they think they're just guessing. But their guesses are biased in favour of the erotic so, image. Sorry to interrupt. Um, so I'm feeling, in that moment, could they change and alter the image could they do they they influence the computer Mm -hmm. that's what i'm thinking i mean that's another possibility and um excuse me there are experiments where uh, people can influence random event generators in computers but these are these images are not determined by random events they're determined by an algorithm that's already 
as it were, there in the computer, which mm -hmm. they wouldn't be able to influence. Now, if you do these experiments with a true random event generator, then you could actually study the effect of how much they could bias what actually happens. Other experiments show that can happen. I don't think anyone's done that particular experiment with a true random event. Mm -hmm. It might show a bigger effect if they did. Yeah, it's very interesting. Very interesting. When you were saying before as well about um, intuition, I wanted to bring something to you and see what, you, what your thoughts were because I'm, I was actually thinking, I had an experience where, um, I mean, I've told, I've told this to you before where I was, I was about maybe seven years old and I always remember this like it was yesterday and I was in the street and I can remember having the feeling that somebody was staring at us and I looked up at the window and obviously someone was waving at us in the window and basically did not, not go too far into it. It was basically uh, um, my only presumption now is that it was a, a spirit or a, a ghost, whatever it was, because the reason reason I'm saying that is because at the time it was at my nana and granddad's house and um, they had a son who passed away and died and obviously the the visual uh, description that I gave of the person that was waving us was their son. Hmm. So I was actually thinking, could it be possible that intuition isn't only bounded by this reality, it actually could stretch beyond? Have you ever thought about that? Because I thought it was interesting when I yes, thought of that. Yes, well, that's a very interesting case, isn't it? Um, um, very hard to do experiments on yeah. ghosts and things. Yeah. They're extraordinarily elusive. Um, but... There are many reports of cats and dogs that seem to react to presences yeah, uh, in, yeah. in places. So it may not just be us. It, uh, there may be something that they are picking up. I don't, I've never done research in this particular area because, I mean, there are people who make a habit of investigating haunted houses and that kind yeah. of thing, uh, paranormal investigators. But you require more patience for that kind of work than I have. And yeah. um, uh, so yeah. I... Uh, I think there's no doubt people do see or experience presences. Um, but on the whole, the presences they're experiencing are, are not... I mean, I think they're fairly low-level spirit. They're like trapped spirits. And I think the spiritual realm is much greater than yeah. tra trapped spirits. Nearly all the stories you hear about ghosts, are, there's somebody who's died there who doesn't know they're dying or they've died mm. suddenly or violently or... There's something where they haven't been able to move on. And when people do exorcisms, they're basically trying to enable these spirits to move on. Again, this is not an area I've, I've worked yeah, in, yeah, but there's yeah. been uh, all over the world, people have beliefs of this kind based on experiences. Yeah, we discussed a lot of that with uh, Penny Satori, who is uh, one of the leading researchers in, in near-death experiences. Yeah, oh, yes. And she, we discussed the possibility of um, maybe it being an emotionally charged event in why people come back to life because maybe they have some um, un unfinished, bu unfinished business. Yeah. Uh, or a sense of they've still got a purpose that they need to fulfil, and that's why they come back. Um, and it's, and in essence as well, it's why people hold on to something because they feel like they've got something unfinished business, and feels like there's something that still needs to be done before they leave. The yes. Life. So I was thinking again, this comes to another aspect of being emotionally energized, the emotional energy um, factor. It could it be another possibility of why maybe you've seen it because. It was a very could have, they could have been your sorry your grandparents could have been focusing on that emotional energy, and that could have brought him back into but this existence. Yeah, kind of thing. the only thing that was interesting about my my scenario was that I never I was wasn't born when he died because obviously he died when he was like fifteen years old. So maybe it was about fifteen years later when I experienced that, and mm. obviously it was his bedroom. It was it was hit this when I was young. I described the description of who it was I ran upstairs thinking that it was my granddad because he looked like my granddad mm. but my granddad was still at work so it's just I, I don't know what, I, I don't know why I brought you but it, I think it was a while ago I thought of that when I wanted to ask you that question because it's just I think it's just interesting how maybe in maybe I mean, we, we don't know what's going on we don't we, half the time we don't know what's going on so maybe I don't know that's why I wanted to bring it um, before anyway yes. I'm oh, sorry yeah Rupert one of the questions um, when I was researching you through Morphic Resonance is you started talking about um it was about memories and about and I was just wondering is, is it possible for other people to access other people's memories because I was feeling like I was getting that type of um, that vibe that maybe that is actually possible um, through like a, hmm. I'm not sure if it's like through DNA coding 
or some form of um, informational energy field that we tap into but I kind of feel like we can all have access to this this um, I think what you call it was like we had access to like skills in which yes. we could um, interpret on on ourselves well the thing is that my idea of morphic resonance is the idea there's a kind of memory in nature mm-hmm. and that it works on the basis of similarity so each species has a kind of collective memory so all rabbits tune into a kind of rabbit habit um, yeah. the, the form of the rabbit and the instincts of the rabbit they inherit not through DNA that enables them to make rabbit proteins uh, but through this morphic resonance mm-hmm. so I think we all tune into collective memories of lots of other people in the past and this is what the psychologist Jung called the collective unconscious um, I think we can also tune into much more recent memories and one of the lines of evidence for morphic resonance is that if you train rats to learn a new trick in one place like That's really London, interesting. then other ones all around the world can learn the same thing quicker and so they're learning they're picking up on the learning of other rats mm. at a distance by this process of morphic resonance so I think that's going on all the time mm. and I think that's how a lot of inheritance works I think genes are grossly overrated I think that they we know what they do, they code for proteins and mm-hmm. for the control of protein synthesis. But that doesn't, they're not controlling for the shapes of organisms or, or the instincts. So they have a relatively limited yeah, role. I know, I'm oh, just going to say before, uh, could you actually d- dive a little bit deeper into that um, in the, to the, to the, and explain that study a bit more of the rat study? Because I heard that a long time ago and I think it's a lot of people would like to hear yes, that fine. just to explain um, the full thing. Um, the... The study was done originally at Harvard, where they trained rats to escape from a water maze. They had to swim uh, to an exit, and if the exit was lighted up, they got an electric shock. If it was not lighted, they they could climb out without a shock. So they worked out how many times it took the rats to learn. And to start with, it took them about 250 shocks before they got it. But after a few generations, they were down to about 30 shocks before they learned it. They learned it much quicker. And at first they thought this was because the parents were passing on the information somehow to their children. Oh, wow. Um, and this was very controversial research at the time. And then it was repeated in Edinburgh, at Edinburgh University and at Melbourne University in Australia. They found their rats began more or less where the Harvard rats had left off. Um, with about 30 mistakes before they learned it. Um, And the ones in Australia had a control experiment where they had, in every generation, rats whose parents had never been trained, same breed, but there was no background of training. Uh, They got better too. They all got better. So what was going on was not a transfer through DNA or through epigenetic inheritance, which is modification of the DNA, Uh, but something that was affecting all the rats of that breed. Now, that's exactly what you'd expect on the basis of morphic resonance. Um, So that's one example of this phenomenon, a transfer of memory. The most radical aspect of morphic resonance in relation to memory is that it depends on similarity. So if I ask the question, who's most similar to you in the past? The answer is you. So... The self-resonance is the most powerful kind of morphic resonance. So I think that we all resonate with ourselves in the past. That's what keeps our form more or less the same, even though the proteins and the cells are changing all the time in our bodies. And that's, I think, why our memories work. I don't think memories are stored in the brain. That's the conventional assumption. As I discuss in my book, The Science Delusion, where I look at the dogmas of contemporary science, um, one of the ten dogmas is that memories are stored in brains and although most people take it for granted it turns out there's very little evidence for it people have looked for memories in brains for a long time and they haven't found them they just assume they must be somewhere else or in another bit but I don't think the brain works that way I think the brain's more like a TV receiver than a video recorder that it tunes into memories Mm. and if you damage the brain you damage the tuning system and you may not recover the memories But when brain damage leads to memory loss, it doesn't prove the memories are stored inside the brain. So this idea that 
we tune into our own memories and we also tune into collective memories means that individual memory and collective memory are different in degree but not in kind. They're two aspects of the same phenomenon. Wow. Powerful that, by the way. Do you think one of the reasons, like a lot of stuff you've talked about for this podcast, intuition and precognition, many many of these different mysteries, do you think that one of the reasons why we can't find something, like a lot of scientists can't find something tangible in it is because just how in life now everything is evolving, like naturally evolving. Do you think that maybe the laws of the laws of nature are also evolving, and that's why you can't we can't always find something tangible tangible to hold on to? Does that make sense? Well, the laws of nature themselves, even in conventional science, yeah. are not tangible. No one's ever met a law of nature yeah. or crystallized one in a test tube. There, it's if you think about it, it, they become increasingly mysterious because nature is supposed to be governed by laws, yeah. but laws are invisible things beyond yeah. space and time, um, unless you think they're just descriptions of what's happening. But most scientists believe there are laws out there that are not in nature but govern nature. Um, so. I, I don't think there are such laws. I think they're habits, and I think that nature is based on evolving habits. Uh, the laws of nature, I think, are more like habits. And some of these habits are very well established. I mean, the way hydrogen atoms behave has been going on for about 13 billion years, and it's such a deep habit. It's more or less like a fixed law. But if you look at something that's new, if you make a new chemical, for example, and you crystallize it, the first time its crystals form, it's never been in existence before, as far as we know. And so it may take a while before this new pattern of crystal comes into being. But if you keep crystallizing it, it should get easier to crystallize all around the world. Mm. And this is actually what happens. It's another line of evidence for morphic resonance. Could it be something similar? As I, um, I was just thinking there in my head of um, a, a trying to resonate back to um, human beings themselves. Um, and I was thinking... One of the examples I was trying to think of in my head could be the, um, the story of Roger Bannister completing the four-minute mile. Um, people were saying it can't be done, your heart will explode. They even, that was what the scientist was saying as well. And then he performed this incredible feat. And then all of a sudden, within a short space of time, and pro- I think it was less than a year, another 12 people yes. had already accomplished something what was meant to be impossible, even just a year about. Do you think he and himself accessed a type of form of morphic resonance and reached um reached other people the possibility that things can be done well it's hard to know in the case of roger bannister and similar record breaking in athletics or sports um because there's several factors morphic resonance may play a part once he's done it it may get easier for others to do it Mm -hmm. there's also the psychological effect you know once people know it's possible then they're more likely to try um so it's very hard in that kind of case to tease apart all the different reasons. Mm-hmm. But I do think that morphic resonance underlies the ability of people to learn new sports more quickly. I mean, people who teach things like skateboarding, snowboarding, uh, skydiving, um, gymnastics, and so on, mm-hmm. um, often say that it's easier for kids to learn it now than 20 years ago. And yeah, And it could be just improved training methods, improved videos, etc. But um, I think there's more to it than that. Morphic resonance would lead to these things getting easier. And the only place you can really tease all these factors apart is when you've got a standardized test. And IQ tests are one example. They, they were first invented in 1918, intelligence tests. Mm-hmm. They've been done in more or less the same way for the 100 years now. And in the 1980s, I predicted that the average scores on IQ tests should be getting better. People should, on average, intelligence should appear to be going up, not because people are really getting more intelligent, but because the tests are getting easier because so many people have already done them. Mm-hmm. And it turns out exactly that is happening. It's called the Flynn effect. IQs r- went up by about 30% during the course of the 20th century um, without any other evidence that people are getting smarter the tests are just getting easier to do. Mm-hmm. Um, in a similar way, um, there have been some experiments with crossword puzzles. Um, quite a number of people say that it's easier to do the Times crossword the next day than on the morning it's published, because so many people have already solved it. <laughs> and uh, 
One actual experiment was done with crossword puzzles oh. in the Evening Standard uh, that suggested this really is the case. Wow. My son, when he was doing GCSEs, when he was 16, my older son, um, it came to me one day and said, he was very excited, he said he and his friends had thought of a way of getting extra marks without doing extra work in their <laughs> exams. Always so I said, well, how do you do, do that? And he said, well, he said, everyone does the exams all over England at the same time to stop cheating. You have to have the exams synchronized. He said, so we're going to do the last two questions first and then go back to questions one, two, three, four. <laughs> we'd be about 10 minutes behind Maybe everyone else in Britain for most of the questions. We'd get a boost by morphic resonance. <laughs> I'd say they actually did this. They did brilliantly well. Um, that would be a, actually a good way of testing morphic resonance. If, if a subsample of GCSE exams had the order of questions changed, you could find out whether people who did oh, these wow. questions later than others um, were actually scoring better on average. That's I haven't been able to persuade them to do this, but. Uh, <laughs> you should get a group of 16 year olds all, all together and say, this is what you should do. Yes. <laughs> We have to wrap this up. Yeah, well, it's, good, it's a good Yeah, it's an absolutely great place to wrap it up. Thank mm. you so much for, um, for joining us as well, having a great conversation. Good, absolutely, great, pleasure. It's great you're doing this. And I'm, 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 I wish you well with your whole podcast series. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you all the best. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Cool, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. I'm so glad that we got a chance to sit down with Rupert Sheldrick. He's a mind that I've wanted to delve into since I started my own journey. And if you also want to support the podcast and support what we're doing here, please just consider becoming a patron. And patron is the best way to support what we're doing here with the podcast. And as you know, we don't run stupid men's underwear ads or mattresses ads or any other ads about stupid things that don't serve you. All we ask is if you consider becoming a patron and donating a small amount each month and help us what we're doing here. And once you become a patron as well, we'd love to see you in the private Facebook group that we're doing. We have a great community in there now, so we'd love to see you there. So anyway, we love you all and we'll catch you next week. Peace.